Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. These days, many of us regard the card game Bridge as nothing more than a quaint pastime for grandparents, a relic of a bygone era of black and white TVs and wet bars in the living room. But like most stereotypes, it turns out that the real story is vastly more complicated than that, as Bridge is a fascinatingly complex game that engages the mind in a way few others can. Fred Gittleman has spent the vast majority of his life dedicated to Bridge in one way or another, from developing leading-edge teaching software, to creating the world's biggest internet bridge site, to capturing the pinnacle of it all, a world championship. And yet, Fred knows all too well that Despite celebrated advocates like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, there is a real and present danger that the joys of playing bridge will soon become extinct. So at the very beginning, um, I guess we should talk about what bridge is. Okay. And um, I want to talk about how you got into it and, and, and your interest and passion. Um, but I think it's best to assume that there are a fair number of people who don't know anything about the game whatsoever. So I'm going to turn it over to you to just to give a, a top-level description of, of the game. All right. Um, well, Bridge is a card game. <laughs> <laughs> what you need to play is four people and one deck of cards. It's considered to be um, a challenging game in that one could spend a lifetime playing Bridge and studying the game and competing and one would never really master it. That, um, that's one of the great things about Bridge, is that you can always get better at it. But you believe this too, enough of this impersonal one could, one would. I mean, yes, you actually, absolutely. You actually believe that. And I mean, I, I've been completely serious about Bridge since I was a teenager, and now, you know, more than 30 years later, every time I play, I still feel like I learned something. That, uh, I mean, really what that's all about is that there's, uh, the number of ways that you could shuffle a deck of cards is, you know, comparable to the number of atoms in the universe, something like that. Massive, massive number. Mm -hmm. And really, every way the cards are shuffled, you get uh, a different bridge deal, which corresponds to a different problem that uh, can be solved. And you're never going to see everything. And you'll sometimes see variations on a theme. Uh, some of the ways you shuffle the cards will result in a problem that you know is almost trivial to solve some will result in a problem that's almost impossible to solve but most of the time you know it's somewhere in between that if you you know apply yourself and uh, you know do everything right you can figure it out and i think that is probably what drew me to the game in the first place was just the notion that um, here is a problem that i can figure out and you know in the same way that people find um, crossword puzzles appealing, or right. calculus problems appealing, Sudoku's, Rubik's Cubes, these are, you get a certain satisfaction out of, uh, you know, figuring out the answer and knowing that you've got it right. right. And, 
you know, that's for me why, um, you know, bridge uh, sunk in is this is something I want to be good at. So I'm going to get to that shortly, but let's go back because mm-hmm. so far, uh, if I'm listening to this, all I know is that you need four people in a deck okay. of cards. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it helps to have a table yeah. as well. <laughs> okay. And the four people are sitting around a table. Um, it's a partnership game. Okay. So the two people who are sitting opposite one another um, are partners and two people sitting, you know, to their sides are, are also partners. Right. Um, everybody gets 13 cards. So there's 52 cards in, in a deck. So you use the whole deck. Use the entire deck. Um, now there's two phases to every bridge deal. Uh, the first thing that happens is something that's called the bidding. And uh, the bidding is done verbally, that everybody um, looks at their hand, and there's a language that's used in bidding that people are basically telling their partner information about their hand. You know, this is the number of hearts I have in my hand, here's the number of aces I have in my hand, and you're having a conversation with your partner and telling each other what you have, and eventually um, the idea is that you know enough about your partner's hand that you can um, make a statement about um, the combined strength of the two hands and what you would like to try to achieve in the second phase of the bridge deal. Um, that's the play of the cards. And in the play of the cards, the cards actually get played out one card at a time um, until, you know, all 52 cards have been played. So, the, you know, the bidding determines the goal of the play of the cards. And, and this bidding process, this mm-hmm. conversation, is a public conversation. So it's Correct. not just that, that your partner uh, understands what it is that you're saying or hears what you're saying, but the, the, your opponents do as well. That, that's right. And um, I mean, one of the interesting things about Bridge is there's, there aren't any secret codes so that... Um, it is the case that you and your partner will, especially if you're serious about the game, you'll spend a great deal of time, you know, discussing various bidding sequences and what the, um, what the bidding sequence has to say about the nature of your hand if you ever make a particular bid. Um, but the opponents are entitled to ask you, according to the rules, what did it mean when he bid that, and you have to tell them. Um, so everything is very above board in the bidding that, um, you know, whatever information you share with your partner, you also have to share with, with your opponents. So if I'm listening to this and I know nothing about the game, I can say, well, what's the point of that? If, if, it, if, if this is all public, why don't you just tell someone exactly what's in your hand? Why do you even go through this ritual? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, you know, the, the, the nature of the language that's used for bidding um, is such that there's only a certain number of words in the language and that there's rules that determine which words you can use at which time. and um, it happens to be the case that there aren't enough words to describe every possible bridge hand that you might have, not even close. And that, you know, one of the things that's challenging about the game is that you only have uh, some information about what your partner's hand looks like. You don't know exactly what his 13 cards are, and you have to, um, you know, sort of, based on the rough picture that you have, estimate what you think the, you know, appropriate... Um, goal should be so that I mean it would be a lot easier if your partner could just show you his hand and you you would know exactly you know what you should be trying to do but you know you only know some rough information about what his hand looks like. Right. Uh, So most people, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that in the popular consciousness most people associate bridge with older people playing. Mm -hmm. 
and the, the, this is a recreational social game that's on par with whatever canasta or something like that mm -hmm. you get a bunch of old people in florida playing this game that, that that's the, that's the sense i think the knee-jerk sense that people who, who don't play the game necessarily have mm -hmm. um that certainly wasn't the case for you in terms of when you got interested and it certainly uh my understanding is is, is actually not factually correct there are of course lots of uh older people who play mm -hmm. but it's by no means a game just for older people no and that's certainly true um, it is the case that when Bridge was at its peak of popularity, uh, probably that happened in the 1950s. And during that time, um, and Bridge was sort of a household thing. It's, you know, if you didn't play Bridge, you knew people who played Bridge. Right. And so, you know, the many millions of people who played during that generation are now elderly, um, if they're still alive. Right. So, um, you know, if you walked up to an average person and said, do you know someone who plays bridge? They might say, well, my grandmother plays bridge. Well, your grandmother was a young person in the, in the <laughs> 1950s right. when everybody played bridge. Um, nowadays, um, unfortunately, I'm still considered a relatively young bridge player, even though I'm almost 50 years old. So um, that's really just a function of the fact, I believe, that the game has not been marketed particularly well you know, to people of my generation or younger generations. So while there are still some bridge players that are my age or younger, um, and some of them play extremely well, um, there aren't nearly as many as there are um, elderly people. Hmm. Um, that's something that, of course, I'd like to see change. I have to admit I'm not particularly hopeful that it's going to happen. Oh, okay, I'd like to explore that a little bit later, why you're, why you're not hopeful. Okay. But let's talk about the evolution of the, uh, of the game first, mm -hmm. and then eventually, we're, we're hopefully soon, we're going okay. <laughs> to get, get to your personal story. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know very much about this, just off the top of my head, my sense is that it, did it develop from Whist, the, the card game? Is that where it, it came did, from? It did, yes. And, and so how long ago were people playing this? Were they, were they playing this in medieval times? Or well, do, you, do you have a sense of, of the actual trajectory? I, I mean, I have some sense of it. It's not something that I know a great deal about. And in fact, as far as I can tell, the history um, beyond, say, the um, early 20th century is not very well known. But there, I mean, have been card games of various types that go back to ancient times. And some of the predecessors of Bridge, including West, you know, were certainly played in Europe in the, um, in the Middle Ages. Really? Yes. Um, now, um, Bridge as it's now played is actually called Contract Bridge. That's the official name of it. Uh, the rules of Contract Bridge were form formalized in the mid-1920s. Uh, um, before that, there was another variation that was quite popular called Auction Bridge, which in that was a descendant of Whist. Um, and Whist, I believe, goes back another couple of hundred years. What was the difference between Auction Bridge and Contract Bridge? Largely the bidding. The, okay. the, the bidding um, in Contract Bridge was more sophisticated, and I believe the, the scoring was different. Auction Bridge really, though, it doesn't basically doesn't exist anymore. Whist still is played in some circles, but, you know, whereas it used to be, you know, an extremely popular card game, now it's a, a niche activity. So one other question that people might have is, well, 
this is a game that, okay, it's a card game, so it necessarily depends on the draw of the cards. It depends mm -hmm. on luck. It depends right. on what cards you particularly get. But there mm -hmm. are ways of actually filtering when you're, when you're playing uh, more seriously. There are ways of actually compensating for, for this luck. Right. So how does that actually work? Okay. Um, well, let me first start by saying that, um, you know, in its simplest form, when you just play bridge socially with four people, right. there, you are correct. There is certainly an element of luck that will determine who will win. Um, I personally think that that's one of the strengths of the game. It, hmm. There's just enough luck so that if you're a competent player and things go your way, you have a chance to beat someone better than you. Now, you don't have a particularly good chance, but you have a good enough chance that you'll keep coming back. Right. Because you'll know that, you know, you're not going to lose every single time. Right. All right. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's sort of appealing. Um, now, when it's played competitively, um, you know, when there's trophies and prize money on the line, <laughs> you don't really want the luck factor to be sure. so important. So uh, what they do in those circumstances is, instead of just shuffling the cards and dealing them and then shuffling again and dealing and continuing like that, is that once you've shuffled the cards once, um, the cards are preserved in something that looks like this. This is what we call a duplicate board. You may have heard the term duplicate bridge. Yeah. And the whole idea is that there's four slots, one for each of the four players, and the 13 cards in each hand get preserved. And somebody else, when we're finished playing, will pass this to another table. And they'll play the exact same hand. Exactly. And you know, the score is how you do compared to other people who have the same cards as you. So it doesn't matter so much if you're dealt good cards or bad cards. What really matters is what you do with the cards compared to other people in the same circumstances. Right. Cool. Um, so, yeah. So, um, so now, finally, we okay. get to your story. All right. So, so a young, a young, I was going to say young man, but really a young boy, I guess, mm -hmm. or at least a medium-sized boy or whatever, a boy, uh, is, becomes captivated with this game of, of bridge. How did that happen for you? And, uh, and were you considered highly unusual because this, this happened? Well, I mean, I, I was a pretty unusual kid to begin with, <laughs> that, um, which is one of the reasons that I became interested in bridge in the first place. What happened was, um, I mean, I, I was, you know, grew up in the 1970s, 1980s, and I was sort of the first kid on my block to have a personal computer. Yeah. And so I was, you know, sort of well-known among my schoolmates as like a weird geeky kid that, you know, played so with one computers. Of, one of the weird geeky kids. Right. Not the yes. only one. I had some friends that, that were similar. <laughs> um, but uh, since you need four people to play bridge, uh, I happened to have some friends. There were three of them. and their parents had taught them to play and they needed to find a fourth person to fill out their bridge game and they figured oh fred's this you know kid that likes computers maybe he'll like bridge so they approached you they approached me huh. and um i'm you might say a bit of an obsessive compulsive type so as soon as i thought <laughs> this seems like an interesting game i you know began to go to the library take out every book i could on bridge I would go and um, you know frequent the bridge clubs in Toronto where I grew up. I would sit for hours and watch the best players play. 
ask them questions about why they did things. And, um, you know, it didn't really do much for my um, education. That, you know, this was a time I was supposed to be going to high school and paying attention. How and old I were was, you at the time? Were you 16 I, I, was, I, was, I was 16 or 17. Okay. Um, so um, I was much more interested in learning about bridge than I was going to school. Right. Um, and, and then what, what are the next steps? So you get hooked on this, you get, mm -hmm. you get uh, approached or dragged in or what have you, you get exposed mm -hmm. to this from your friends. And, and I would imagine being, as you say, a bit of an obsessive compulsive type, which seems vaguely oxymoronic, but anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, as somebody who has uh, tendencies to throw yourself into various things, mm -hmm. you threw yourself into this whole hog. Um, and then what happens? Where do you where do you go from there? Presumably you're getting better and better and better. And right. Well, I, I mean, I think it, it's it's sort of like any other activity that you can play competitively. There's various levels that you know in bridge. The first level of competitive bridge are the local clubs, where you know every afternoon and every af and every evening, you know they'll have um, you know 15 or 20 tables of people all playing bridge, and there's nothing really at stake. It's just try to beat the other people at the club. And, you know, they're, it's sort of a step up from the people who play socially, right. but they're not, you know, super serious players. Um, so I started by doing that. And then there's, uh, after that, there's local tournaments where, you know, maybe once a month there will be a tournament, you know, in Toronto or 20 miles away from Toronto, um, you know, where you can win a little trophy if you, you know, happen to do well. Um, and then they would be bigger tournaments, regional tournaments where, you know, three or four times a year, I would drive to, you know, Montreal or Detroit or, um, you know, Buffalo. And now you would have a chance to win a tournament that if you won, you would get your name in a bridge magazine. And, um, you know, beyond that, there's national championships. And beyond that, if you can win a national championship, you can represent your country in the world championships. So, um, you know, you might think that, you know, that would have been my goal was to just keep winning bigger and bigger tournaments. I was slightly unusual in that um, I didn't particularly care for that so much. I like to go to these tournaments because I like to play against the better players right. and, and have a chance and to challenge yourself. Exactly. And, you know, meet the people who I read about who are my heroes and learn from them. But, you know, winning the tournament in and of itself was not an important goal for me. I was just not naturally you know, particularly competitive. I just thought it was a beautiful game and wanted to learn everything I could about it. And did you find, as you developed, that uh, you had uh, certain superiority in some skills as opposed to others? You talk about the differences in the game between yes. the bidding and the playing. Did, mm -hmm. did you have a sense of my, my real forte or natural ability is over here, I have to work on this, or, or, or what? Um, I mean, I was naturally drawn to the, the play of the cards. and. It may be because that's something that um, is almost purely technical, that you can become extremely good at it if you study it. It's almost like, you know, if you wanted to become very good at calculus or something like that, you can, it's something you can do on your own if you're willing to read enough books and put in enough time. Whereas the bidding um, is something that you do with, you really have to master it together with your partner. And, um, you know, I, I mean, it, it wasn't that I was, completely antisocial and I didn't want to have partners and work with them. But, you know, because I was so obsessed with bridge and wanting to work on it 24 hours a day, and it was hard to find, you know, someone like me, um, you know, a lot of the work I did was individual in nature and that, you know, lent itself to, 
you know, becoming proficient at the play. Because you could control your control the things a little bit better. That's right. Presumably. Right. Um, I want to talk about the partnership thing because mm-hmm. uh, so far we've mentioned it's a partnership game. You just mentioned it now, but the the scale that you've just talked about in terms of going up the scale, playing playing at your club, playing mm-hmm. local tournaments, playing non-local tournaments, moving forwards. This is the sort of thing that you would imagine a tennis player or a golf player to do. But in the meantime, it's a partnership game. You're playing right. with people. How mm-hmm. Do you have a difficult time finding people? Do you choose different people all the time? How does that work? Well, um, if you're really serious, you'll have basically one regular partner. And it's almost like a marriage that you and that person are, you know, a team. It's a bridge team, but it's... Um, you know, you spend a great deal of time together, you know, after you play, you discuss all the deals that came up and, you know, you bid this on this deal. What were you trying to do? I didn't understand. And you make notes about, um, you know, so that in the future you'll have a better understanding of what each other are doing. And you begin to learn your partner's habits, just like a marriage. And, you know, even the, um, you know, the emotional side of it that, you know, when your partner is having a bad day, you learn to recognize that and you learn ways to make your partner feel better or to compensate for his, you know, not being at his best. Right. Um, so, but when you're starting off that you probably, you know, you don't have that right. luxury. Now, I mean, when, when I was starting off, I would basically go to the bridge club and hope that there would be someone there that would be willing to be my partner. <laughs> now, um, I, got a little bit lucky in that regard because it was unusual for someone so young to go to the bridge club and you know the regulars there um, were very you know they were concerned about me because they knew i should have been in school (laughs) but at the same time they were very welcoming and they they liked it to see you know a young person playing bridge Um, so i didn't have that much trouble finding partners and i was also um you know i was so interested in learning and i was I believe relatively, you know, well-mannered and respectful. Um, you know, I, I, I really wanted to know what other people thought and I would ask their opinions and I would listen to them. And so the people liked that because I was, you know, giving them, um, you know, credit for knowing something and, and it made them feel good. And be willing to learn from them. And, yes. And, and so. um, now, um, you know, if you were to go and just play in a bridge club, there would be, um, and you didn't have a partner, it, there would be a decent chance that the manager there would be able to find another person who didn't have a partner. But, um, you know, a lot of the time, um, these people don't have a partner for a reason because, you know, perhaps they're not very polite or they don't play very well. Or, you know, generally, if you're um, someone who behaves themselves or, you know, has reasonable bridge skills or ideally both, you don't have that much trouble finding other people to be your, your partners. Uh, if you don't, then it, it's, it becomes harder. It becomes harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing that you've seen a fair number of couples mm-hmm. play bridge to the detriment of their relationship. Yes. Uh, this, uh, you hear these horror stories of, mm-hmm. of, of, of people uh, of having relationships going off the rails because of bridge and either they have to stop playing bridge or they stop seeing each other or maybe both. Or mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right. Do you, uh, it, do, do you have marriage marriage slash bridge therapy sessions or <laughs> well I, I mean i i guess i would probably say that most married couples would probably be better off not playing bridge together <laughs> um th- the reason is um it becomes an ego battle for a lot of couples that 
or I, I mean, any bridge partner really ha has to be able to manage the you know the conflicting egos. That the nature of the game is such that um, sometimes you're going to get bad results, no matter how well you play. And it can be frustrating. Sometimes you're just unlucky, or sometimes your opponents will play very well, and you'll do poorly because your opponents played well. Um, and it can be frustrating, and it can be upsetting. And it's natural for many people, you know, in circumstances like this, to try to blame someone other than themselves. Right. Um, and you know, your partner is someone a built-in person to blame right there. And so, um, you know, particularly if the couple doesn't have like a completely ideal relationship, they'll you know, look for ways to, you know, to blame each other, that they'll take out their frustrations in real life on their partner at the bridge table, that, you know, they'll lash out. And um, so it's, uh, you see that a lot, that many married couples, um, you know, who may or may not have a good relationship in real life, do not have a good relationship at the bridge table. So You play with your wife as well. I do, you, yeah. Uh, I, you know, and, you know, this may sound terrible, but, my wife Sherry would be the first to tell you this, that I think one of the reasons we can make it work for us is because um, the ego battles don't come into play, that she's a very fine player, but we both know that I'm a much better player, that I'm right. a world-class player. So, right. you know, if we have a bridge disagreement, the she's chance... She's going to defer to you. She'll defer to me, sure. right. So now, I mean, give Sherry some credit here in that she's, um, she's a good student, and that she is able to keep her ego in check. She doesn't have to try to prove she's right, and she's smart enough to know that she's almost always wrong. I probably also do deserve some credit because, um, you know, even though I'm very good, I'm nobody is perfect at this game. It's too difficult. And if I make a mistake, I'm not above saying, sorry, Sherry, I screwed that up. And, you know, so we're able to manage the situation pretty well. And when you play at the highest international levels, mm -hmm. you, you, you have, as you were talking about before, you have a, a set partner with mm -hmm. whom you play and you, you change part. I guess it would be somewhat analogous to professional tennis doubles where right. you, you'd play with someone for a while, then you wouldn't play. Do you, do you, are you thinking about the sort of person who, uh, with whom you can play uh, as you're going tournament to tournament saying, gosh, that, that guy would actually fit with me if, if uh, a couple of years from now, if this relationship yeah. was off the rail. Do you, do you, do you think that way? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, for me, um, I've had in my you know, bridge career, I guess maybe three or four serious regular partners. The most regular one um, was my regular partner for 15 years. And, you know, we were very successful together and we became very close friends. And, you know, so it, it wasn't like I was really on the lookout for other partners, but certainly, you know, in our travels, the people we encountered, there were the other people who clearly were people that I liked and I respected their ability um, that I would think, you know, you know, if the time ever comes that I need another partner, this might be someone I would consider. And is there is there a profile for you in terms of, I mean, obviously someone who has to respect you, you have to get mm -hmm. along, they can't be a, an SOB, right. <laughs> all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But in terms of bridge skills, could you say, well, uh, we're looking for somebody who can fit with my strengths and weaknesses, relatively speaking, and, and would you be able to characterize the, the profile from a bridge perspective, or, or is it more psychological? How, how would that work? I, I mean, for me personally, it's more psychological. That it, it's, it's important for me when I play the game that I enjoy the person's company, that, hmm. um, you know, it, it's, 
too difficult a game to, you know, have to suffer the ups and downs of the game itself with having to, you know, deal with a jerk at the same time. <laughs> so, um, you know, that for me is important. I actually, in terms of the, you know, the bridge style or the bridge personality that the person has, um, I think that one of my strengths as a player is that I'm fairly flexible, that I can adapt to, you know, my partner's, um, you know, whatever his particular, you know, bridge theories or bridge whims happen to be. So um, I don't care so much as long as I like the person, you know, and I think that they've got, uh, you know, they're a highly skilled player, that that would be important to me. Are there a lot of, speaking of, I may just uh, push the jerk thing a little bit okay, further. Sure. Um, I could imagine that there, that this is a very, very competitive world. Mm -hmm. People play at the highest levels. Are mm -hmm. there an awful lot of people who are super competitive who might verge on jerkness, jerkahood, jerk, mm. jerkitude, I guess, uh, when, they, when they're playing? Or is it not that way? Do you get to a stage when once you, uh, once you get to a high enough level, there's so much mutual respect that's going on with the people who are doing it that, that you don't find that so often? You know, m most of the very best players nowadays um, make their living from playing bridge. And so... It's important, you know, to keep up appearances so that when you're actually playing, you're expected to behave yourself, to behave professionally. Okay. You know, in the same way that I think, you know, when a golfer like throws his club at a tree or something, that that just, that is frowned upon. Sure. And so that they've, you know, even those that are, you know, tempted to do something like that. Have a professional trained, golfer. Yes. <laughs> that they're, 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 you know, hopefully anyways, most of them can control themselves. Right. So that... Um, it's the same thing in bridge, that m when people are playing, they're almost always well-mannered and well-behaved. Now, um, unfortunately, sometimes when they're not playing, um, you know, that doesn't happen. Um, I, I mean, I, I can sort of, it's, it's really, it goes back to the same thing, though, that there's only room for so many bridge players to, you know, make a good living from the game. And there's more bridge players than there are slots for bridge players to make money. Right. So to some extent, there's, you know, backbiting and dog-eat-dog -dog crap going on, um, you know, away from the actual bridge table that, you know, people are trying to make themselves look better and make other people look bad. And, um, you know, it's, it can be kind of ugly sometimes. But the behavior generally during the actual tournaments is the standard, I think, is quite good nowadays. Okay. So you've, 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 so you've spoken about making a living at the game. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me how that works. How do you, uh, what kind of money is out there? How, mm -hmm. do you, how do you get to that level? What's involved? And, and what, is the, what is the process? Okay. Well, um, most of the people who make their money from bridge, um, they're actually playing bridge. And bridge in most tournaments um, is done... Um, on a team basis, that there's a team will consist of two or three different partnerships, so four or six players. And um, the very best players uh, will play on a team in which there's a sponsor um, who may or may not be uh, a good player, um, who is paying everybody else on the team to play on, on their team. So, you know, imagine that you know, you are a very wealthy person and that you'd like to win a very important bridge tournament. Um, and you may be a decent player, but you're not good enough to win a national championship. Right. Okay, so you could um, sponsor, you know, a team. sponsor a team and now all of a sudden you would have a chance to win. Uh, so I would pay, pay you mm -hmm. a 
appearance money, I'd pay your expenses, I'd pay, I'd, I'd pay you a salary to play on this team? Is Essentially, yeah. And I mean, there might be a bonus structure built in so that if we did, were successful to various levels, I would get paid extra money. Um, and so, I, you know, I think nowadays in the United States, there's probably, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 20 to 30 major sponsors, each of whom will hire, you know, the best four or five, um, you know, bridge professionals they can, you know, to go and play in the biggest tournaments. Now, the same things um, also go on at lower level tournaments and even in, in club games where, um, you know, in a club game, it's more of a, a lesson type thing that it, it's like you're paying a tennis pro to go and, you know, right. you know, to play with you at the club and, right. and teach you along the way. Exactly. Right. Um, so, but that, that's how most bridge players make their living is by actually playing, um, you know, and trying to, you know, help a lesser player either learn or win a big trophy. And, and so there's a, it seems to me there's a real difference between national championships, world championships, and these sorts of events, these mm -hmm. sponsored events. Is that, is that fair? Well, or, is it, or, is it, or, or is there a mixture it, it, between it, the it, two? It, How does it it's work? It's really uh, sort of all the same. I mean, the, I just came back from a tournament that's designated a national uh, championship tournament. Yeah. Okay, and I think there were about 5,000 bridge players who went to Dallas, which is where it was held. Um, and there's a series of events that are, take place there. The biggest events, um, if you win it, you're considered a national champion. Um, and, you know, many of the players who are participating, it's an open event, anyone can go and play. Okay. But many of the players who actually do play were either professionals or sponsors. Um, and it's the same thing at the world level, actually, too, that, um, you know, the American team, you know, will often consist of, you know, five great players and one sponsor. Sometimes the sponsor is a great player, sometimes the sponsor is not a great player. And so I would think that in the long run, if the sponsor is not as good a player, it would bring down the results it of is, the team. It's much harder to win. Yeah. Right. Um, that is true. Um, <laughs> so. Making a national team, what does that even, what does that mean in light of the whole sponsorship thing? Is that related at all? Like, isn't that more of a Canadian or American Bridge Federation or how does that, how does that well, all work? Well, that's, I mean, there, each country, um, you know, does have its own National Bridge Federation. And one of the responsibilities of the National Bridge Federation is to, you know, select their team, you know, who will be our team for the world championships. Um, and there's various ways that teams can be selected. Um, but in the United States and Canada, they basically have, you know, a single event that is, you know, a, a playoff to see which team will, and anyone can enter the playoff. And it's often the case that the sponsor, a sponsored team will enter the playoffs and will usually win because the very best professional players, they want to get paid to, to right. do this. So. Tell, tell me how it actually works. So you go to a high-level event. Mm -hmm. How often are you playing? What? How does it work uh, physiologically? The stress involved, the psychological stress involved. Because okay. I, I can again, I see if you, if you're somebody who doesn't know this world, you think, well, a bunch of guys playing cards, you know, right. big deal. But but there there is money involved. Mm -hmm. There is a tremendous amount of mental processing which needs to be involved all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're playing presumably an awful lot, so I could imagine that it would it would really be quite stressful, uh, both psychologically and also physically. Oh, it 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 does. It takes a lot out of you. I'll, I mean, the tournament I just played in that I mentioned in Dallas, it's ten days long. Um, 
that you play about eight hours a day in wow. two sessions. Um, and basically when you're playing, you know, you are just sitting there and in thinking and thinking intensely, concentrating. And um, it takes a considerable amount out of you. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter like what kind of shape you're in, you are exhausted. Um, at the end of the week, um, I've lost 10 pounds. Like, really? I, yeah, really. <laughs> um, now, I don't know if that's typical because, I, I mean, for me, it affects, you know, my eating, my sleeping. I, I don't really eat very much, you know, for the entire time. I think that's one of the reasons that I, I, I lose weight. But, Sounds like uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> not so uh it's 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 fun in a sense that i mean it, it is satisfying and it's fun when you win uh, losing is terrible yeah but, well, like anything i guess yeah. at that level certainly um can you because you're playing these uh, these duplicate hands mm -hmm. Uh, and because I imagine it's a very quiet environment, there's no sound, which is, uh, you know, being, people aren't shouting and screaming, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm guessing. No, it's very quiet. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have a sense as to how well you're doing as, as, as the tournament is going along? Because you don't know how, maybe right. you don't know. Uh, I'm thinking... Well, I mean, you, you find out the score sort of at the end of every session. Okay. Okay, but even before that, a good player will know how he's doing. That um, I mean, you, you can judge that you know once a given bridge deal is complete, um, an expert player will know what all the fifty-two cards were and will be able to tell you know what could have happened if everybody had been perfect. So you can sort of judge yourself not only against perfection but you know against what is likely to happen at other tables that are playing the same hand. So. Um, you know, it, that's sort of just a skill that you you pick up. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of amazing that um, you know even not particularly great players, when the bridge game is over, they can remember you know all the cards that they had, and it's not like they've ever tried to train themselves to do that. It's just you know by playing the game, your your mind somehow programs itself to you know remember. Um, and how long do you remember it for? Do you, do you remember hands from two years ago or five years ago? You know, there are certain spectacular hands that I remember from 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, I'm not as good at this as I used to be. That I think, you know, getting older probably has something to do with it. But, um, you know, when I was in my early 20s, um, you know, you could, you know, weeks later ask me and I could, you know, recite exactly each of the 52 cards of every hand that I played. No. Uh, yeah. Now, nowadays I only, you know, I sort of remember the vague features of the hand and I can, uh, you know, remember the details of the spectacular hands, the really interesting ones. But, but and you, and at the time, when you were in your early 20s, did, mm -hmm. you, did you do extra exercises for this? Other than playing no. bridge, did you do any other training whatsoever? No, and I, I mean, I, I actually have a clear memory of one day I could just do it, the day before I couldn't. It, and it was amazing. It was like that overnight my, my brain had somehow taught itself to do this. How long had it taken you to get to that? How many years or months or days? Maybe I had been playing bridge seriously for two years at the time. And, and you know, before that, people told me, you know, one day you'll be able to do this. And, you know, don't let it bother you that you can't do it yet because you'll learn how to do it. And I did. It was just like a phase transition. Just yeah, like... exactly. Cool. So. 
and and you've had that ever since and you you do you do find that you don't remember can you remember consciously just as well as you used to uh or 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 is that has that changed do, do you understand my question no uh, um, so so there's the sense of um remembering without having to invoke anything you can say oh i had this hand blah blah yes. blah 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 and then you can have a conversation with somebody when they say remember that hand mm-hmm. uh, last week uh and then you have to actively remember it so if you have to actively remember a hand can you do it uh can you do it as well as do you have any problem saying oh right i don't actually remember all the yeah, cards yeah i mean it's, sometimes i'll need like a a a cue like like i'll they'll say do you remember the hand in which this happened no i don't can you tell me what the spades were and they'll say okay you had the ace and the king and the four of spades oh now i remember so you know things like that will will sometimes take place do some bridge players use memory enhancement because memory plays such a such a strong role in the, mm-hmm. in, in the game in real time processing i would i would imagine i mean it, it's a I, so i'm a novice level bridge player um and one of the problems is you just can't you just can't you forget you forget information you don't mm-hmm. have uh, and without that information of course then you're completely screwed <laughs> so um it, do people do some people invoke other techniques memory techniques or is it just a question of playing more and more and more i i think it's really just a question of playing more and more um that you just learn how to do it and i'm sure i've no doubt that, that you could do it you just have to play enough yeah right. i guess um, I promise you could. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, the teaching that you've done, because mm-hmm. you're, uh, you've played at a, you you've played and you continue to play at an extremely high level, professional level, um, but you've you've done two other things, uh, which I would guess most most bridge players of your caliber have not done, namely you uh, you've done quite a bit of. Uh, work in bridge education bridge teaching you've mentored people you've taught people um and you've also developed uh, a very successful software company which uh produces not only bridge pedagogical teaching techniques but also online uh, bridge playing and so forth have you does does teaching so i want to talk about each of those in turn but does the act of teaching in any way help you clarify any thoughts even at the level that you're at or is it just so far beneath you that it's just No, not really used. No, I I think it does to some extent that I mean something that I've seen um when a bridge expert tries to teach a lesser player um it's very natural to take things for granted that you know for me are things that I don't have to think about that I just understand. Right. And that you know by seeing the blank stares of the students <laughs> who don't understand and see and you know empathizing with them and realizing that i have to explain this in a way that you know is far you know at a much lower level than you know i think about um it does in some sense give you some insight into you know the deep nature of what the game is all about that something that you know for you has just always been easy and not worth thinking about now you have to put it into words and you know it 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 helps you understand better i think oh. does it give you i would imagine it gives you some sort of satisfaction in the way that teaching gives all sorts of people satisfaction it's mm-hmm. nice to interact with people it's nice to help them nice to nice to mentor them um 
uh, I'm, I'm guessing that there's another aspect to it, which is furthering the cause that you believe in, the cause of bridge, getting mm -hmm. more people involved in this. You had uh, darkly alluded to the fact that you're not very optimistic about, about the future. You had also talked about the sociology that people in the 50s played bridge and it was very regular. Do you feel uh, a sense of perhaps obligation to give back to the game to try to encourage more people to do it? Is it that sort of feeling or is it just more, no, this is a fun thing to do, I really like to do that and I think this is a great game and more people should know about it. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if obligation is the right word. I mean, in, in some ways, um, I mean, particularly in the work I do with the software as opposed to teaching, I realize that I have the ability to make a difference, that I, I you know, whatever the future of the game is, um, I can make it a little bit brighter at least, maybe a lot brighter. And um, I care about that. So, um, you know, it's not like I feel like I was, you know, put on this earth to change the world <laughs> as far as Bridge is concerned or anything. But I see that the work I do does make a difference. Now, I mean, teaching, you know, on a very small scale, maybe I make a difference too. But, it, you know, there I can only impact like small numbers of people at a time, whereas some of the software that I write, you know, millions of people have used it to have downloaded, you know, learning software. Or, um, you know, as we speak, there's probably 15,000 people playing bridge on the, you know, the site that I helped build. So, you know, whereas if I, you know, teach, I've never really taught like rooms fulls of people, but even if I had a room full of people to teach, that's what, like a hundred people? Right. So, you know, we're a software, you know, the whole world can can see it. And you started writing bridge software, what, 2000? Or was it? Um, no. no. No, it was a lot earlier than that, Much right? earlier than that. Yeah. No, no, a couple no, decades. Right. So it's like 19, yeah. 1980 um, even or something, isn't the, it? Right. The, the late 1980s is when I started experimenting with it. And um, at the time I had, you know, a real job and um, you know, Sherry saw what I was doing with the bridge software and, you know, we had recently become, you know, a couple and she was the one that suggested, you know, you should be doing this, that, you know, you're making wonderful things and we can, we can make a difference with this. People are going to want to use your software. So you, you did this software just because you thought it was a, a cool idea or exactly, what? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's, and we, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was, I mean, at some point we had to decide, you know, how can we turn this into a commercial venture because, you know, we had to put food on the table and sure. pay the mortgage sure. and stuff. Uh, but it was really, um, you know, driven by the, the love of the game, that the, the software that we wrote. And, um, you know, we started out writing yeah, educational software. Here's, a, you know, one of our... CD-ROMs, so this will teach you to become... This is what confused me, because it's Bridgemaster 2000, so then I had 2000 yeah. in my head. Well, th this was, yeah, this um, was the... It, this particular edition of this program came out in the year 2000. Okay, so the, uh, I have no excuse now. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the first, the first 10 years or so, we, we made products like this. Yeah. Um, and then we sort of turned our attention to the Internet. Then, you know, roughly around the year 2000, that's when, you know, everybody started having, uh, you know, computers that were connected to the internet. And, you know, we found ways to get people to play bridge over the internet and to, uh, you know, learn bridge over the internet. And, um, 
So that has been the main focus of what we've done ever since. So first, let's talk about this, and then we're, I sure. want to go to the on-site office. So, okay. so how does this work? Mm -hmm. um, I'm somebody who uh, wants to learn about Bridge, mm -hmm. and and I get one of these products. I get a I get a CD version, or I get an online version, or whatever it is. Um, and and how does how does it actually? What does it do for me? How does it how does it? Well, I mean, it, it's sort of like. Um, an interactive textbook in a way that I mean you, you sort of you read the rules the way you would if you were reading a textbook and there's you know exercises at the end of each chapter to make sure that you've quizzes and things to make sure that you understand the material properly right. but because it's you know software as opposed to a book um, you know we've been able to make it interactive so you can actually um, you know in some of the exercises you actually play bridge against the computer and the computer tells you when you've you know made a mistake and um, for most people, it seems like um, a nice way to learn that they can do it at their own pace. They don't have to worry about like looking stupid in front of you know a class or right. someone yelling at them because they didn't get it right. That they can, you know, it's a very comfortable way to learn. And and there, I mean, you're you're a bridge expert, but there's also the understanding of pedagogy and what levels are the right sorts of levels. And just mm -hmm. because you yourself. Uh, are an expert in something by no means means that you have some clear understanding of how to guide people through a process. In fact, many people who are very good at something are terrible at <laughs> being yes. able to do mm -hmm. this. Was this something that you you tried, bounced off various people, does this work, is this the right level, or, or, or are you just instinctively insightful in terms of what you think are the best problems to um, go through, or how does I, that work? I, I mean, I think I'm instinctively not hopeless at it, but <laughs> I... I definitely sought the opinions of players of various levels of are we teaching this in the right order you know this hand feels like it's appropriate for someone that's been playing about two years what do you think and you know listen to what other people had to say right. so um, you know I, I I think we did a fairly good job of that and it wasn't easy um, you know particularly being an expert myself trying to put myself you know in the mind of someone that has been playing six months or one year or two years and what are they ready for? Uh, so, you know, we asked players of those levels and we asked experienced teachers and other bridge experts and, yeah. you know, made our best guess. And does, is your, you mentioned the fact that you were the first person uh, of your peer group to have a programmable computer, which was, mm -hmm. if memory serves, a Commodore 64. It's actually a Commodore PET. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I wasn't one of those people. Uh -huh. <laughs> and You've always struck me as somebody who's had, who has this, um, who has, I would say, a, a very clear computer science-oriented way of thinking about things in lots of ways. It doesn't surprise me that somebody who was interested in programming was very logical, was very analytical, uh, had, I think, naturally above-average memory skills, would would be intrigued by and successful at a game where you had to do this high-level analysis mm -hmm. and fill in who has what card at what particular time. It seemed, seemed like an ideal fit. Um, is, is that just my sense of romanticizing things, or, or do you think that there's some innate uh, you know, ability? I, I think there's, there's a connection between the being interested in problem-solving, being able to program computers, which is really an exercise in problem-solving, being interested in bridge, which is a different kind of exercise in problem solving, but I, I I don't know, you know, which is the chicken and which is the egg. That you know that if I was born with an innate ability or an innate love 
to try to solve problems or if my exposure to computers, you know, when I was 10 or 11 years old, you know, is maybe that is what brought it out in me that everybody, you know, is hardwired to do this and you just need, right, a, you know, stimulus that will, right. you know, get you thinking that way. Right. The, so let's move to the online bit. Mm -hmm. um, so BridgeBase now is, is one of the largest, the largest uh, online site? It, it's actually, I believe, uh, larger than all the other sites put together. We basically have a monopoly. Cool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that takes, um, that takes additional skill. Uh, I could imagine that this, the whole aspect of building a business is very, very different in terms mm -hmm. of skill set than, than being a top quality bridge player. Well, and it's something that I would, that is something I would certainly claim to have no natural ability at all. And, and I mean, I'll tell you something, the bridge base, which has become, the bridge base online has become a very successful business. It was never at all intended to be a business that basically we decided one day, Sherry and I, that, um, you know, we think there should be a high quality free online bridge site just because this would be good for the game and we're selling enough CD-ROMs that we can, you know, afford to put a little bit of money into this. So we made one and we had no idea at all that it would ever become a successful business, but, you know, it grew and grew and grew and, you know, it, it got to the point that, you know, every day, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were like logging into our site. And um, I think it's the case that, you know, if you have enough people, you not that hard to find a way to turn it into something you can. So how do you monetize it if it's a free site? How does that work? Well, um, the main source of revenue we have right now is that um, people can pay us a dollar to play in a mini bridge tournament on the internet. And if you, you know, are successful in the, in the tournament, uh, you get uh, your ranking as a player goes up, your status in the world of bridge. So, um, you know, people are willing to pay a dollar for their status, for their status. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it is the case that I think only about, you know, 10% of the people who ever log into our site ever give us a dollar. But there's so many people that log in. They can subsidize the whole that, thing. That, yeah, and 10% of them is a lot. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's very strange making money a dollar at a time. Um, <laughs> but it... Um, you know, if you have enough dollars, it works. I mean, I, I also remember thinking at the same time when we were started selling our CD-ROMs, these things we were selling for $60. And I was thinking how unusual it is that it's, I mean, it costs us a dollar to make one of these, yeah. but it's almost, this was almost like printing money, but you know, $60 at a time, well, that adds up. And now to think that like $1 at a time, that that adds up even more quickly. You just Right. Need more people. Well, it, it costs you a dollar, of course, to print it, but there's the, the huge amount of unique investment that, to that actually make, make the product. <laughs> once you've you developed the product, it, it's not very expensive to... Yeah. Right. Um, so you, you... I should have mentioned this before um, because I, I, I saw this medal, but so let me go back to it. So sure. I, mm -hmm. I, I've neglected to mention, because I'm terrible at this, I told you I would probably neglect to mention this, okay. uh, and you're a self-effacing fellow, so I know you wouldn't mention this, but mm -hmm. um, you have won a world championship in uh -huh. Bridge, yeah. and 
so I'm not going to do the typical sports thing, which is say, how did that feel? Uh -huh. okay. <laughs> but, Thank you. But, I, <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm going to ask a, a, a different question, which is, were you, um, did you look at this as some culmination of your career ahead of time? Because you had just pointed out, or you have been pointing out throughout our conversation, that while you were not really a super competitive person, mm -hmm. you enjoyed playing uh, the game, and that was what was driving you forwards, the intricacy of the game, becoming a better player, and so forth. Did you, did you think to yourself, gosh, if I could only win a world championship, did that sort of thing ever enter your mind at all? Well, um, not at the beginning, for sure. I think after what happened is after I'd been playing bridge for about 10 years, the um, better players in Canada, the elite players who represented Canada internationally, started to notice me. And they started to invite me to play bridge on their teams. Now, at the time, it was, you know, a massive honor that these people were, you know, my ultimate heroes. And, you know, I wanted to be just like them. So I was, you know, thrilled to have a chance to play with them. But they were all highly competitive people who were trying to be the best in the world. So, you know, I basically, if I wanted to be able to stick with them, I had to, you know, even though I wasn't naturally competitive, I sort of had to force myself to you know, become competitive. Right. Because they were expecting that. Right. Um, Otherwise you would have stuck out somehow. Or... Uh, right. Or I just wouldn't have been good enough. Right. That, that, you know, I never would have lived up to my potential. That I really had to, you know, apply myself and decide, okay, I'm going to, you know, do whatever it takes to compete at the highest levels. And so, um, you know, at that time, I, I guess I, you know, consciously or not, I underwent some kind of fundamental personality transformation and I... Ooh you know, beca became a, a competitive person. Um, and at that time, I thought, you know, now the goal is to become the best. The best is to win the world championships. Um, and I guess it took me, that was around 1990, took me about 20 years. But 20 years later, I, you know, won a world championship. Several times before that, I had come close. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, this is a like a gold medal. I think I have three silver medals and a bronze medal as well. Wow. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it took a while, but I, you know, eventually satisfied my goal and I became a world champion. So. That is, that's pretty cool. Where did that happen? Uh, it happened in Philadelphia. Hmm. Oh. Sort of unlucky, but uh, I mean, nothing's wrong with Philadelphia. But um, I, one of the things that Bridge has done for me is it's given me a chance to uh, see the world. I've been basically everywhere. Played bridge on you know every continent in probably fifty different countries. Um, so um, I mean, I guess it was sort of nice in a way that I finally won a world championship and I was relatively close to home. But you know, <laughs> given some of the exotic locations I played bridge at, it, you know, Philadelphia feels a bit. Well, I'm sure you didn't mind at the time. No, <laughs> it was okay. <laughs> so once you won this world championship, did you revert back to type? Did your, did your competitive juices uh, ebb out of you? Did you say to yourself, uh, this personality transformation is now complete, I've achieved my goal, or are you now trying to you know, take over um, the world of 10 years I, running? It, the uh, final chapter has not been written yet, but I think that that's the way it's likely to go. Uh, it's kind of strange, but... Um, I still love the game. I'm not that interested in playing competitively anymore at this particular moment in time. Um, I can't say for sure how I'm going to feel in a year or two years or five years, but you know, for now, it's like I've 
done what I set out to do, and I'll stay interested in bridge, but I'm not necessarily going to keep trying to be the best. So. Right. And, and in terms of your development as a player, mm-hmm. um, did you feel that during these, this 20-year period leading up to the World Championship, did you feel that you were getting better and better and better? Or does that not even have any meaning? Was it just a question when you were getting the silver medals and the bronze medals? Was it, was it more a sense of, well, I just didn't get quite lucky. We missed one thing. Was it, or did you actually think that by 2010, you really were a much better player than you had I, been in 2000? I, I was certainly a much better player. Um, in some particular areas of the game, 100%. Um, the bidding in bridge in particular um, is something that you can become better at through experience. That you know, the more bridge hands you see, um, you know, the better your judgment becomes. That I, maybe it's partly a function of pattern recognition that you start to you know consciously or not um, you know compartmentalize things in your head that. If I see a hand like this, you know, I've seen, you know, enough other hands like this that I know what I'm supposed to do now. Whereas, you know, when I started as a kid, my, you know, raw brain power that I could process with was much more powerful than it is now. But I didn't have the experience to draw on that I I was sort of just making things up as I went along. Um, So, I mean, experience has value for sure, um, as does emotional maturity. I think that you know, as you grow up, you become, you know, better at um, dealing with adversity. That um, really, um, in bridge, one of the most important factors that decides on any given day, am I going to play my best game or 80% of my best game or 40% of my best game, is um, mental focus, how well you can, you know, focus on the task at hand. And uh, if you allow yourself to get distracted by emotion, you can't focus, it's impossible. So I think the older you get, the better you get at shutting out, you know, other things that distractions like emotion or other things in your life. And, um, you know, it's easier to do that when, you know, you become a more mature person. And this may compensate for, as you said, the lack of, the lack of raw brain power, or at least the diminishment of, of, of that right. aspect of raw, right. raw brain power. I mean, it would, I think, as far as I can tell, most bridge players um, you know, peak in terms of their level of ability, you know, sometime around the age of 40, which I'm pretty sure is like well beyond when they're, you know, at the peak of their, their mental powers. Just Right. Um, so the two factors combining, that's the maximum. That's right. That's the maximum. Now, I mean, that being said, there are players that play well into their 70s, you know, that can compete and sometimes even win at the the highest level. So it's, and there's also occasionally there will be a prodigy, you know, a teenager or someone in their early 20s that will, you know, win a major tournament. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, it really can be a game where just about anybody can play exceptionally well. But, you know, for the average person, um, it doesn't get much better than, you know, when you're in your early 40s. And, and so do people, by and large, again, in terms of partnerships, because mm-hmm. when you talk about winning these things, you're winning these things as a team. You're winning these championships as a mm-hmm. team. Uh, uh, is there a sense that people are looking at, at, at matching ages and experience, that if you're, a, if you're a prodigy at 18 and doing something, you really should be with somebody who's at, who's at least 40 or, or something like that? Does that go on in terms of the, 
the self-selection process? Well, the, you see some of that. You also see sometimes that um, it will often be the case that the most talented people of a generation will, f you know, maybe there's four or five of them, you know, in the United States right now who are like in their early 20s that they'll congregate together and, you know, they'll, they'll form partnerships. Um, now, they certainly would benefit greatly and do benefit from speaking to more experienced players, but they don't necessarily have to be their partners to do that. They can, you know, be their teammates right. or they can, you know, just uh, watch them play or read what they've had to say or study their moves. Um, you know, one of the other cool things about the Internet Bridge is that, you know, at any time you could log into our site and there's probably, you know, on average about 100 world-class players who are playing. Really? And yeah, so you can go and, you know, watch their every move. You can see the cards that they have the way they would see them and see what they do. And it's a great learning tool. For it's fantastic. And, and, and if you're uh, lucky, the person will be willing to answer your questions. Why did you play the Six of Diamonds? You know, and particularly if you're not too obnoxious about it, you know, you can, <laughs> always helps. You can ask them. Um, now, sometimes there's also even commentators that will, you know, uh, sort of do live play-by-play -play analysis of the best players in the world, you know, trying to explain why we think he played the Six of Diamonds. Have so, you ever done that? Have you ever done the commentary? I, I used to do that a lot, yeah. Um, I mean, eventually the sort of natural antisocial nature of, of Fred, you know, <laughs> came through and I decided I never want to do this again. But, you know, it took when, a while. It did. When we, when we were building up the site, um, you know, trying to get more people to come, I was a draw because I was a, you know, famous player and I was you know, well-known, so people would come and want to hear what I had to say. So now we're big enough that we don't need me as a draw anymore. So you don't have to do that anymore, no. so you can withdraw. Okay. I can withdraw and be the recluse that I naturally am. <laughs> um, let's talk about the future of the game. Okay. Uh, so you've had a very, uh, very successful career. Mm -hmm. uh, you've You've had a very successful career in many ways. Certainly as a player, you've had a very successful career, but also in terms of bridge education, in terms of bridge software, in terms of uh, the building the site. I mean, you've, you're uh, Mr. Bridge in all sorts of different uh, overlapping but distinct areas. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, the future of the game is something that you're, uh, that you're passionate about, that you're interested in. Uh, we talked about how... Uh, about these misconceptions that it's a game just for older people, that clearly it's not. And yet, you said at the beginning of our conversation that you were not terribly optimistic mm -hmm. about, um, about the future. Uh, I guess two questions. The first question is, that seems to jar a little bit with how many people are coming to your site. Maybe mm -hmm. they're all, you know, at death's doors or something like that. But, I mean, they're, they're, we'll probably have to take that out because that just doesn't sound very good. No, no, but, that's fine. <laughs> but, you know, the, the term that I use, and which you might also have to take out, is that the game is about to fall off a demographic cliff. Yeah. Okay, that, um, I mean, the, I think the average age of bridge player in North America now is over 70. Over the average is over the 70. The average age is over 70. Of course, people are living a lot longer. They so are. Over 70 is not what it used to be, but right. still. Mm -hmm. That's not the demographic. It's, it's, it's not, not what it's you not want. It's not good. Yeah. Right. Now, I mean, there are some, you know, hopeful signs that, as I understand it, uh, you know, tens of millions of baby boomers are retiring. And that one of the ways that Bridge has, uh, you know, been 
well marketed in recent years. It's sort of become well known that it helps keep your mind active. Right. Which okay. of course it does. It does. It's it's not it's not a scam or anything. It right. really does that. And that um, some of the people um, you know who market Bridge have had some success getting you know baby boomers to take up the game. So um, it may be that that represents a shot in the arm, and that you know I mean it may just put off the inevitable inevitable date for another ten or twenty years. Um, you know it would be better if you know college aged people are. Uh, learn to play bridge the way they did, you know, when our parents were in college. Um, and that is something that I'm not particularly hopeful about, unfortunately. So, so I want to talk about what we can do, but uh, I mean, I guess mm -hmm. it's worth just clarifying that um, there are two different statements. So one statement is that if you are uh, a senior or a more elderly person, playing bridge is not only a fun thing to do, it is a useful thing to do to keep your mind active and fresh. Mm -hmm. That's a true statement. That doesn't, of course, imply in and of itself that Bridge is a game particularly or only suited to older people. Right. Uh, and, and I think if you're, if you're promoting the first message at the expense of the fact that it is a game which appeals to a wide range of people mm -hmm. of a certain predilection across huge uh, uh, universal age uh, categories, mm -hmm. Then uh, uh, I can't remember how I started that sentence, but anyway, clear, clearly, <laughs> clearly, what one because I'm getting older, you see. <laughs> clearly, um, uh, the the fact that it is uh, it it is a great way to keep your your mind active. Chess is also a great way to keep your mind active. There are all sorts mm -hmm. of things that are sure. great ways to keep your mind active. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's only for people who are over the age of sixty or seventy right. or or twenty or whatever it is. It's it's age independent. So. You're not sanguine because of the data that you see and because of the trends that you see. So what needs to be done and, and how can we actually go about, how can we as a society go about doing that or, or is there nothing to be done? Well, if somehow you could convince many millions of people just to try bridge, you would get a lot of them sticking with it. But that the nature of the game is such that it's something that, say, 10% of the people who try it, even if you don't present it in a particularly good way, are going to fall in love with it. It's just a, it's a fabulous game. It just does that to people. Right. Um, so, I mean, the way I think about it is it, the marketing challenge is getting the millions of people to try it in the first place. Um, now, that is difficult to do for a number of reasons. I mean, one is the image problem, that if you are a young person and you know, if you've heard about Bridge at all, you think about it as a game, you know, for grandmothers. Um, and even if you really love your grandmother, it probably, <laughs> you know... And I think most people do. I think they do. <laughs> and people have, like, wonderful respect for their grandmother, and they might even think if grandma thinks it's a great game, it probably is a great game. But it's not for me. You right. know, I want to watch MTV, or I want to, you know, ride my, uh, you know, fancy bike, or play my video games, or, or whatever. That the... There's a lot of alternatives nowadays that young people can do for entertainment. Um, you know, there's a thousand channels on TV. There's like a billion websites. There's you know a zillion apps on their on their phones. Um, so Bridge has a lot of competition. That's that's a problem. Um, so I mean, even if you can get by this, uh, it's a game for old people thing. You know, why is somebody going to necessarily want to play it versus do? 
all these other things. And, and that's a marketing problem. Are there also logistics involved in the sense that it is a partnership game? Mm -hmm. So even if, you, even if you think, okay, I'll give this a try, you have mm -hmm. to give it a try with someone. You have to give it a try. You have to find three other people who want to sit down and play with you if you're starting out. You, uh, you may not feel... It's a bit of a barrier to go to a club. I mean, mm -hmm. I felt, felt this myself when I, when, uh, I was going to say when I was starting out, but I haven't got much better than starting out. But anyway, uh, mm -hmm. the, the notion of, of going to a club is, uh, it, it, it indicates a, a level of keenness that one might not actually have. Right. Uh, <laughs> so. Well, you know, I mean, you, you make a good point, but I, I think there's a way around that um, using software that y you can learn to play bridge you know, playing against robot players. Um, and so you don't really need a partner or other right. people to play with. Right. Um, and it's, you know, in some sense that gives me hope because, um, you know, kids who like technology, the whole idea of like being able to play a game on your phone against, you know, smart computer opponents, a challenging game, that is going to appeal to, you know, a certain class of like bright young person. So. Uh, you know, and I can write the program. We sort of have it already. It's just now how do we get like 10 million kids to try it? So I don't know how to do that. Have I you thought about partnering with school boards and stuff? Like, I mean, using it because they, they have this mm -hmm. chess in schools program for right. a while. You can maybe think about doing something. I mean, if, if, it's, if it's not about necessarily making a lot of money, mm -hmm. uh, you could imagine... I'm just obviously talking off the top of my head, but you could imagine partnering with educational institutions that would be willing to perhaps uh, give it a try. Yeah, you know, it, it has been tried, and I wasn't directly involved. As I understand it, um, really what happened is that um, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, who are two serious bridge enthusiasts, um, put up a lot of money, basically, um, you know, towards this cause. And essentially uh, had people approach various school boards and say, we think, you know, you should be teaching bridge to your students for the following reasons. And they gave them good reasons. It is something that is healthy for kids to be doing. Uh, and we'll give you the money. We'll give you the training material. We'll, you know, bring in teachers. You know, we'll do everything. And the, uh, the program didn't get anywhere basically because of the layers of bureaucracy that they had to, you know, face. That they had to deal with. Hmm. So, um, you know, it's kind of a sad story that, you know, the, and as I understand it, they even selected, you know, school boards that they thought would be... Most accommodating. Know, yeah, and hmm. they didn't get anywhere. Uh, hmm. And you, you had just, just, since you brought it up, you, mm -hmm. you told me a story once long ago about being on a train oh. with, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, with, with both... Bill Gates and Warren mm -hmm. Buffett, right? Wasn't this when, when long-term capital was dying or something that, like that? That is true, yeah. yeah. And I didn't know what was going on. I, I should back up a little bit. And um, I, I mean, one of the you know, many wonderful things that's happened to me as a result of Bridge is that I've become friends with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, um, you know, largely through the software that I wrote, right? right? That's how they, I came to their attention. And so they started using it and they, they contacted you, is that what happened? That's right. Um, first Warren, he just phoned me one day and you know, said, I like your software, I'd like to order some more. And you know, I gave him the sales pitch. And you know, when it came You gave to, him the sales pitch? He already yeah. said I wanted to order some no, more. No, what? like I told him what I thought he should buy and, oh. and how much it would cost and everything. <laughs> okay. And you know, when it came time to take his name and address, 
um, I realized who I was talking to. <laughs> and, um, you know, I asked if it would be okay if I included like a letter asking for his business advice. And so I did that and we became, began like a written correspondence. And um, as I said earlier, I don't really, you know, pride myself in being someone that understands business or has good instincts in that area very well. So I, you know, welcomed uh, sure. the opportunity to speak to someone <laughs> who knew what so. they were talking about. Um, you know, and you know, among other things that he said was that, you know, I may have some, I don't know very much about technology, but I may have some people that, you know, I know that play bridge who do know something about technology and perhaps one of them could help you. And one of those people turned out to be his good friend, Bill Gates. Um, and Convenient. Uh, I eventually met them both in person. Uh, they were chartering a private train as part of a vacation and they wanted to have a bridge leg of the trip. Right. And they asked me to come and play bridge with them on the train. Who was the fourth, by the way? The fourth was uh, a friend of mine named Sharon Osberg, um, who was, uh, I believe she knew Warren originally because she was a executive at Wells Fargo, which is one of the companies that Warren had an interest in. She okay. had become close friends with Warren. Through him, she had met Bill. And okay. She was a world champion player also. Uh, but also a you know a very impressive business person. So an interesting foursome. An interesting foursome. How how long was the was the trip for? Well, um, what happened is they flew me to Bozeman, Montana, and we got on the train and. So this was the first time you had actually met either one yes. of them. Yes. Okay. Um, and we, f the train trip was to Denver, and I believe it was about two days, and we basically just. Played bridge the entire time. <laughs> so. Right, because of course, that's, that was the whole purpose of the, of the trip, presumably, exactly. for that. Yeah. And, and at this point, they, they were both uh, reasonably good players. They were, they were beginning players. They were, where, where, what, how, what was their level? Well, uh, Warren has been playing bridge for many years. I, I think he, you know, when he grew up, his family were, were bridge players. And he was quite competent um, already. Bill was relatively new to the game at that point, but he's, as you can probably imagine from what you've read about him, you know, he has a very, you know, voracious appetite for knowledge and, sure. you know. Didn't take long, probably. Didn't take long. And, um, I mean, they're, they're both now, you know, very uh, competent players. I mean, they, I have no doubt if they had dedicated anywhere near as much time to the game as I had, um, you know, they would both be able to compete at the very highest levels. Now, of course, they both had very serious lives apart from Bridge, and that's limited what they can do. But, you know, they're both good enough that they can, you know, play against people like me and Sharon, and certainly, you know, we're big favorites to beat them, but they're not going to embarrass themselves. Um, sure. So that must have been a pretty cool experience. That was an amazing experience. And, I mean, part of it, um, to me, was... It, it was a refreshing experience that here you have, um, you know, the, not only the two wealthiest men in the United States, but people who are, you know, their accomplishments are historic in nature, that the, these are, you know, people that will be remembered a hundred years from now and, uh, you know, larger than life figures. And here we are just playing cards and they were just two guys and, you know, they could have been anyone. And, um, you know, that to me was kind of refreshing that, 
you yeah. know, the, the bridge was the great equalizer that, you know, I was just like some, at the time, a kid from Canada. And here we have like the two, you know, wealthiest guys that have changed the world in so many ways. And, you know, we're all just laughing and, and having a good time playing a card game. And you kept seeing them afterwards? Is this... We did, yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, we since have played together in tournaments and, oh. you know, in social occasions and things like that. Uh, and they're both still passionate about the game? or do you, They as are. Far as you um, know? I mean, Bill, since he um, retired from Microsoft and became so involved in his um, foundation, sure. doesn't play as much as he used to. Um, Warren was never really interested so much in playing competitively. I think that, you know, he enjoys the social aspect of the games. And, I mean, they're really the best of friends, the two of them. So I think, you know, because Warren doesn't really enjoy the tournament experience so much, you know, Bill will usually defer to him and they'll play socially. So they, you know... Do they you play as a partnership, the two they, of them? No, no, they, oh, no, they oh, don't. They, they don't? Yeah, not, not so much, <laughs> no. Um, so nowadays when they play... Um, you know, it tends to be in a social situation as opposed to a tournament setting. They used to, you know, Warren used to humor Bill Moore and be willing to go to tournaments, but not so much these days. I mean, life is, is strange that, you know, to think that, you know, I've had a chance to get to know people like this. Yeah, well, they've had a chance to get to know you as well. So. That's true. <laughs> they probably think life is strange too. <laughs> I guess so. Um, so you mentioned Sharon, is it Sharon Osborne you said? Osberg. Osberg. Mm -hmm. Um, your wife, um, Sherry, and mm -hmm. of, of course there's a, there's a tremendous number of female bridge players. Mm -hmm. One of the things which has confused me is that um, in, in activities like bridge and chess, very often there's a distinction between male mm -hmm. and female events. And I've never understood why that is the case. Do you understand why that's the case? Um, not for sure. I, do you understand why most of the most accomplished physicists are men? I have a theory uh, that, that's not quite the same as understanding. Um, but um, I, I, I have a theory. Would is you like to hear my theory? Sure, because I bet it's similar to my, my theory. My theory is that it's the sort of thing uh, which tends to be related to a huge amount of obsessive mm -hmm. dedication. Mm -hmm. And I think statistically, men are more prone to that level of complete you know, obsessive behavior to be mm -hmm. doing that at the, uh, um, to the extent of, 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 of virtually nothing else, uh, immersing themselves fully in that behavior. I think it's linked um, to the same reason why there is a preponderance statistically of um, uh, some of these deve developmental uh, conditions like autism and so forth. Mm -hmm. I, I think these things are all somehow related and, and, and in fact monomania I think is, is it seems to be more prevalent in men than it is in women and I and I my theory is that monomania is statistically related to excellence in these various fields. That's my theory. Okay and do you think that some of that might be driven by pressures I'm, from society that at least in past decades women you know, bright young women have been expected to... I think there's a, there's a huge environmental component, but I don't think it's just an environmental component. Okay. But I'm not the one that's supposed to be answering the question. All right, all right. Yeah. Well, no, I think, I think the same sort of explanation lends itself well to bridge. But I think there's something else, too, that 
the very fact that the women's events exist uh, is part of the problem. Yeah. Okay, so that if you're, you know, a brilliant young woman who happens to be talented at bridge, uh, and you have a choice when you're, say, in your early twenties, do I want to go and play in the men's tournament and maybe come seventh or eighth, or do I want to play in the women's tournament and have a good chance to come first, make a lot of money, fame and glory? It's not that hard to be. Uh, you know, sympathetic to the woman choosing to play in the women's event, right. and continuing to do that. And these things get reinforced, obviously. Exactly, yeah. and and that I think it's you know most activities, be they um, you know mental or um, athletic, physical, whatever, um, the best way to improve is to play against people that are better than you. Absolutely. Okay, and that the you know the women by playing in the women's events, they're you know sort of setting a bar for themselves that I can't go any higher than this because I can only play against the best women and I can't play against, you know, the best men. Yeah. So um, it feeds on itself. Yeah, and I would add to that, uh, I, I'm guessing from what you said to me in Bridge, but certainly it's like this in other fields, there's, um, once you have a, any sort of clubby mentality, then the, mm -hmm. the psychological pressures also and the attitudes and the, the, the ways that people are treated tends to also reinforce that. Absolutely. I mean, there are, um, there are some, I mean, it's far from rare actually to, to find a, an accomplished male bridge player who will categorically refuse to play on a team with a woman. Really? And, yes. And I mean, to me, that's, you know, a shockingly, ignorant attitude that and there are specific women that I know you know play you know in the same league as someone like me and you know I, I it is the case that there aren't very many of them there's a lot more males of my level than there are females but you know I don't understand the attitude that under no circumstances will I play with a female you know on my team but there are people like that and you know they don't outwardly seem like you know crazy bigoted and People, but so what percentage, roughly, of people would would fit that categorization? I, I would say probably of all the top level male bridge players, probably a quarter of them. I would guess that many would have that sort of attitude. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. And and I mean, we talked before about getting people interested, getting people involved. I mean, mm -hmm. one obvious way to do that is is to break that cycle and maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, Maybe focus on 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 younger female players. I mean, why, there are all sorts of different tactics. I, I think why, that would, why, why not do that? That would be smart. I, I, I mean, look. I mean, I know for me that you know when I was nineteen or twenty, besides being interested in bridge, I was interested in girls. <laughs> right. And you know, but being a geeky, shy kid, it wasn't so easy to meet girls, right? Um, or I wasn't very good at it, anyways. Um, now it turned out that I got very lucky and I, I met like a lovely, brilliant young lady at the bridge club, but you know, there weren't very many of them there. If, if there were more of them, uh, it would have made the game look more attractive to someone like me. Yeah, but you see, this is why, with all due respect, you're not very good at marketing. So <laughs> I, I, I'm talking about a way of attracting mm -hmm. um, young, vivacious, intelligent girls to this activity. Mm -hmm. And you're basically saying let's if, use them <laughs> if well it's not just that i mean there's that but it's not even just that it's mm -hmm. that look girls if you come to this bridge club and play you'll meet geeky guys right <laughs> i i don't think that's really going to work very well i think uh, mm -hmm. i i think we have to we have to work a little bit on the spin here uh, 
But look, the, the, the fact of the matter is, the game is a fascinating game. The game is an addictive game. And the game is a game that um, there's no particular reason why young people shouldn't be interested in. Um, and in fact, they would be better at, according to this raw brain power idea that you have, which mm -hmm. is, tends to be verified by cognitive scientists. And um, it's terribly depressing to me as I age. But, um, so they, 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 should, they should definitely be doing more of it. Um, anyway, I'll leave it to you to come up with the final pitch, as you do so well from your experience. But it's been fantastic talking to you. Anything else you want to you add? Um, I cannot think of anything right now. <laughs> I might. Think of something that we, we can come back. But sure. Let's take a break. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, it's been great. Thank you, Howard. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Anthropology and Sociology, along with separate discussions with Joseph Curtin, Mark Maslin, Ian Stewart, and Franz Duvall. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.